America in the history of the world. Oh, I'm recording right now. Okay. <laughs> All right, right, right. So, um, I've encountered through my journeys online many people, many of them stupid, but some of them very intelligent, like our friend Andrew Isaac, who thinks that the one that the, the so it's kind of two main issues. The 9-11 attacks was an inside job. The second thing is that the buildings couldn't have collapsed the way that they did by impact from the planes. Particularly, they mention Building 7 seems to just... It looks like there was a detonation that went off, so, building, so some people say. Building 7 is not one of the towers, then? No, it's not one of the towers. It's a, it's a building that is near it. And it seems to just explode and then just kind of go down like like it was just like an internal thing. Yes. So like when if you ever encounter this, I'm sure you do sometimes online every now and then. What do you have? Do you see any credibility? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, I don't know anything about the Building 7. Like I said earlier, I haven't seen the Fahrenheit 9-11. I haven't really done any research into the uh conspiracy theories but i do i do know that uh the amount of heat and pressure it takes to collapse a steel building is not the melting point of steel so that that argument's one of my favorites when people are like jet fuel can only burn this hot so how does that go how does that argument go what will they say so as far as i know i think they say jet fuel can only burn it this amount of this temperature right and so uh it burns this hot and so I don't know the number, let's say 3,000 degrees. And then they say the melting point of steel is this given value. And uh, the problem is that the melting point is the point at which it is a liquid. It's not the point at which it deforms easier. So if you've ever uh, dealt with a hot piece of metal, it's significantly easier to bend a hot piece of metal than it is to bend a cold piece of metal. And so that's, that's the problem with the argument of this temperature of jet fuel burning and it doesn't get hot enough to melt the steel is it doesn't have to get hot enough to melt the steel all it has to do is get hot enough to reduce the tensile strength uh or i guess compressive both uh the strength of the steel and it reduces it reduces it enough that eventually at some point it just collapses and so the hotter and hotter the steel gets the less and less capable it is of supporting the structure so what is a plane what is it made of? Is it steel? No, a plane's aluminum. They're talking about the steel of the uh, buildings. Oh, they're saying that the the steel of the buildings yeah. can't melt. It, at the temperature that the plane's fuel burns. And so the planes that the hijackers picked up were specifically long-distance flights, and so they had a lot of uh, fuel on the planes. And so, I, they, I mean, they, they picked up, like, planes from JFK that were going to, like, Dubai or something. So the plane was just full of fuel. And then when they crashed into the towers, that fuels what burned and heated up the steel inside the towers, causing the towers to collapse. Oh, so okay, so that was part of the plan, the master plan. Definitely, they they purposely, they purposely picked, picked, picked a, mm -hmm. a plane with a ton of fuel. Yes, definitely. I never knew that. And so, in uh, in that extra fuel basically caused that extra heat and burning. And so that plane was coming from Dubai or somewhere? Uh, I, I, no, no, no. It was going to. The, it was planes that were leaving from the area. Oh, so they were and stocked then, full. And they were full of fuel because they had to travel across the Atlantic. Oh, I don't man. know if it was going to Dubai. That was just an example. Right, right. And so um, 
Is that usually what people will say? And so, and so that was a big conspiracy theory that was going on, but you can go watch videos of metal workers online that are like, all right, the melting point of steel is this. I heated it up to half of that. And then they just bend it with their hands. Mm. And so like uh, a metals uh, functioning point, like when they design a building, they say, what temperature is this building gonna be at? And then they determine, all right, we need to then over-design this. So it's called a safety factor. A safety factor of two means uh, we expect it to experience this force, this load, these problems, and we can handle twice that. And so safety factor two is like minimum for anything that's ever handling people in it. I would imagine for the Twin Towers, they're building things on safety factors of three, four, depending on the component and the structure and where it was at. And so it can handle all this extra stress, but that's only under given temperatures. When you heat it up to way higher than it should be, uh, the tensile strength and the shear stress and the uh, ability of the uh, steel to under to undergo the forces on it was just uh, it wasn't able to handle that anymore. It's just too hard. Are there even buildings that can withstand? I mean, a you, plane <laughs> crash like that. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not a civil engineer, and I'm also not. Uh, I don't know. I haven't haven't done like ballistics in the building yeah, study. Yeah, but it just seems like common sense is the enormous planes like that going yeah. into a building. Like a building's not gonna just. Yeah. sustain it and you know like i don't know if like the architects and, and the engineers you know plan for that mm -hmm. and then the second argument i've heard is how it falls was not expected yeah but in all honesty that's how i would expect it to fall if a floor in the middle of the towers lost strength and it collapsed well then the whole building would just crumble down be like, like a that. domino that would, effect I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it to blow over in the breeze you know so right. i would expect it to fall to the way gravity is pulling it <laughs> and what would you think would be a possibility having not having not studied the thing with uh building seven so there's a, a building near it mm -hmm. now it makes sense to me i am so what exactly I'm stupid happened? It when like it comes collapsed? to engineering um yeah so it it just like collapse similar to like if there was um an explosion Explosions in the building the and bottom. it just like fell down like it was almost controlled it seemed i mean it, it there just seems like there could be a lot of possibilities so maybe the hijackers put explosives there and the government didn't want us to know the, how much they had infiltrated and planned and how complex their scenario was so mm. they hid that i don't know i is it possible too that the the amount of force from the falling towers i, I cause i have no things idea surrounding about that it? that that yeah, that's, I don't know if it, so by force you mean like shaking the ground as it lands or I don't really like know, an, air, I mean. an airwave or something? <laughs> I have yeah, no, I guess. I have no idea about that. I, I definitely don't. I mean, it's like, I, I'd imagine, I don't know if that's even, people are even prepared, would have been prepared for something like that. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure you're not expecting anything like that when somebody's building building. They're, they're going to expect certain how, how things like earthquakes or certain like yeah yeah just or accidental how an close accidental was it? plane was it like adjacent maybe a yeah. beam, maybe like a big i beam or something flew out and took it out like, yeah some know. yeah it could have been a million things but so then that leads a little bit to i think what it really comes down to because i was thinking about this earlier today and i was thinking why do people just have to think that it's a conspiracy that there that it's something other than what we are hearing and mm -hmm. seeing one it's we're we are regularly lied to people are regularly Definitely. lied to by the governments but the other and so it creates a lot of doubt um and suspicion but i think that well there's a motive too right right and so the combination of those two things definitely 
And so I was, as I was mentioned to you earlier, uh, before we started recording, I was listening to Noam Chomsky, professor of, he was professor of linguistics and philosophy for like 50 plus years at MIT. That's all. And, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he's one of the most critical voices on U.S. government and U.S. foreign policy. And even he says that if this was an inside job, if it was done by the Bush administration or if it was done by um, people or like some deep state group, like CIA or something like that, which Andrew thinks is, prob is possible, maybe not probable, but possible. Um, but he says there's no way that a secret like that would have been able to been kept inside. So that would have required so many people and um, it would have been there would have been other motives and other ways had they done it to get into Iraq. They mm -hmm. could have done that. Yeah. They wouldn't have needed... I mean, it's such a risky move. Because it was actually known then that the hijackers weren't Iraqi. Mm. You know, they were Saudis. Yeah. And um, I guess, so what do you kind of think concerning so that, that? So that does bring up uh, one of the interesting points. Uh, I think this comes from that same movie, but I'm not certain. Uh, one, one friend I was talking to about this said that uh, when the planes crashed, uh, they knew they were Saudis, right? And uh, they released multiple Saudi, uh, like, high-profile members, I guess, of the Saudi families uh, that were here in the United States. And it seemed uh, a bit ridiculous that you would let them go, right? So imagine I go and commit a murder. And then my mom's like, I want to fly to Cancun. And everybody's like, yeah, see you later, Vicky. You know, go ahead. Your son just killed a whole bunch of people. We don't care. Right. And so, like, uh, it was a bit ridiculous that they let these Saudi family members that were here. It's not like they were responsible for the attack or should be charged for anything. But the fact that the U.S. government let them leave. And I believe it was, uh, and maybe don't quote me directly on this or we should, I should look it up better. But I believe it was George Bush that said they could leave. And let, mm. and let certain Saudi family members leave. And so that was kind of a point towards the conspiracy theory, but only if you don't consider how closely entwined U.S. political officials are with the Saudi ruling family and the oil money coming from there. Yeah, if, so, if Saudi Arabia didn't have any oil, and so that then was, they wouldn't have, they would have kept those dudes oh yeah, they locked up. They would have kept the family. And it, like, I think, I think it was like teenage boys and like a mother and stuff like that. So I don't think it was, mm. uh, you know, any like militants or anything like that. But they still let them go. And I think it was an FBI, uh, somebody from the FBI that was saying like, you know, we would have liked to have questioned these people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We would have liked to have talked to them at least, you know. We weren't going to accuse them of the crime or, you know. But It, it would have been nice to have yeah, a chat. Yeah, of course. You want to speak to the relatives anytime somebody commits a crime. You want to talk to their family and figure out what the hell's going on. And so, uh, kind of kind of definitely points to the complicitness, at least, of the uh, federal government in that uh, they care more about oil money than they do about what happened. Absolutely. And so that goes back to one of the main reasons why people are so skeptical oh, yeah. and cynical <laughs> yeah, of anything government related. Dude, I hate the government. That's why I want to take as much power away from it as possible. Are you voting for anybody? Uh, I haven't election? I haven't decided yet. Uh, are you, my, my are you a Trump lives fan? In, lives in New Zealand and Donald Trump uh, 
removed her ability to get a visa here until the end of the year and i'm worried he will extend that so i think because of the coronavirus because of the coronavirus yeah uh just shut down all foreign visas i mean she's literally in a country that has the lowest number of cases on the planet she's in new zealand and she can't come to the u.s because of corona so and that's you know crazy. i i'm no <laughs> trump fan at all but it's funny to hear people my parents hate trump more than mm -hmm. anything and so when i speak to them i play devil's advocate and i yeah. you know try to find the good of trump and uh but you'll hear from people on the left how trump doesn't do isn't doing anything concerning the coronavirus but it seems like he actually is i mean and you know for one blocking your girlfriend from yeah. coming to america <laughs> from new zealand <laughs> <laughs> from new zealand to america they literally had no cases at one point dude it's crazy to me I understand countries so maybe blocking people. He's not from blocking travel. He was blocking visas. He's not letting them come in. And we have any, any, no foreign. Oh, visa. but that's what I mean. That's basically. Is well, that kind of the same? She could come. So he's blocking work visas. Like I should have been more specific. Oh, okay. So she, she can come she and just travel. visit. So he he um has prevented travel from specific countries. So like China, Iran, Brazil, I think all of Europe, if I remember right. Uh, and so the hotspots, he's prevented travel from all travel from those places. But he stopped foreign work visas. And so just the ability of foreigners to get a visa to come and work here, which, wow. uh, I mean, he's letting people from New Zealand travel here. So it's ridiculous that he won't let people from New Zealand come here on a work visa. He used coronavirus to basically forward his political agenda of preventing foreign workers from coming here. Oh, so I see. Th that's what I dislike. Well, and you know what? It doesn't make sense also in say your girlfriend comes here mm -hmm. she gets coronavirus but she can't stay here work visa so she goes back to new zealand <laughs> transfers it over to new zealand brings, so new brings zealand it has over. some pretty strict uh quarantine so she she comes back to new zealand from the u.s she has to quarantine herself for like three weeks i have i've heard a lot of countries are not wanting to come here at all <laughs> i mean no, america no. is not the place to be right now no i mean we're the number one cases on the planet uh when it comes to percentage i don't think we're the top but definitely just the total number of cases highest dude i'm glad we solved the uh the 9-11 conspiracy so quickly it's already done we can get back to it i think, I think no no we we solved it dude there's <laughs> nothing else there's nothing else to do <laughs> i think chomsky's point of it's just too complicated i mean you look at snowden in the nsa that wasn't murdering 3,000 americans and causing uh a war in Iraq, you know, that's what 9-11 did, uh, and Snowden came out with the NSA just spying on people. Not to say spying on people wasn't a big deal, but I think in comparison, 20 years from now, nobody's going to look back and be like, oh yeah, I remember that time Snowden, you know, that was a huge point in my life, I remember when that happened, mm. you know, but everybody knows where they're at when 9-11 happened, and so, just, I don't know, it's way too big in my opinion to keep something like that confidential, keep it wrapped up. Yeah, I agree. You hear that? 9-11 conspiracy theorists <laughs> it's it solved out. dude george george and i mostly george solved it let's move on to the and rothschilds we, and we, yeah we didn't even read about it <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we didn't need to hear your evidence dude, oh actually dude i do have a question this is in your uh, wheelhouse all right uh, nuclear science so when the what was the storm that happened in japan there was a storm that happened in japan the tsunami, um, that, the tsunami that yeah mm -hmm. so can you explain that a little bit because when i was i was reading about it um when it happened and then recently i was mm -hmm. watching something about it 
and some people were very very concerned and worried about it but it was that an unnecessary worry so uh it was a necessary worry for sure but uh what happened there design wise uh the problem was the storm wall so uh, in fukushima they have three sources of power they could use to power their reactor and the real issue with nuclear reactors is the nuclear waste assuming uh you don't have a reactor built like chernobyl and so uh all new modern reactors aren't built like Chernobyl, so the real concern is the nuclear waste. Um, and so you got to cool it down. So anytime you run your reactor, right after shutdown is the worst time that it's going to produce the most heat. And so you got to cool it down the most. If you don't cool it down then, it's going to cause damage to your core, uh, could possibly melt through the core, cause a containment breach. There's a lot of bad stuff that can happen. Uh, and so right after shutdown is the most important time to cool down. And then the further and further you get from shutdown, the less and less heat it produces, so the less and less you have to worry about it. Um, so anyways, they have three sources of power to keep their plant cooled after, uh, in, in order to remove that heat from the reactor, right? So the first source of power is the plant itself. When the plant's running, it powers its own pumps and the pumps cool down the reactor. And so that's the first source. When the tsunami was striking Fukushima, they said, all right, we're worried about this causing damage, so we're going to shut down our reactor. So that's first source of power gone. Reactor shut down, can't, pow can't cool itself down. So they could try to draw on electricity from elsewhere. The tsunami knocked that out. And so that leaves their third source of power, which is um, their backup generators. And so they have big diesel backup generators where they have, or it could have been gasoline, most likely diesel, uh, backup generators where they just have large amount of diesel fuel stored and they run those, uh, those generators and then that powers the pumps to cool down the reactor. So that's what they relied on. And they're like, all right, we're gonna run our diesel generators, cool down our reactor. So there was no fault in the reactor at all. It was just cooling it down with the diesel generators. And some idiot put the diesel generators down in a basement and their storm wall to prevent a tsunami bringing a whole bunch of water into their plant was too small. So they designed their storm wall too small based on like 50 years of small storms. And so they hadn't had a really bad storm recently and they're like, oh, whatever, we'll build the storm wall this high. Uh, one of the designers, when they designed it, recommended a much higher storm wall and they ignored him. And so, uh, short storm wall and tsunami comes in and it floods their room with their diesel generators in it which diesel generators can't function underwater and so now they've lost all three sources of their power to cool down the reactor and for i think it was two three weeks they just sat there and watched the reactor melt just essentially what happened in three mile island uh three mile island Jeez. being people choosing to do that but in fukushima they didn't have an option so i read a story that the engineers there went out into the parking lot where cars were abandoned and tried to make a series circuit through the batteries out in the cars and uh, batteries in the cars in the car, uh, their parking lot, and set that all up to try to power their pumps using car batteries. That's insane. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of scenarios they could have had diesel generators available for fly-in if they needed to. They didn't have that available, so all they really needed was power. Uh, what about from pumps. other countries? I mean, couldn't they have from South Korea or from the United States? Yeah, I mean, uh, Japan's a pretty big country, so I I don't I don't know they I, I don't know how difficult it would be mo to mobilize and bring in some generators that cool down the reactor, but it didn't happen. Uh, and so as the reactor uh, sat there and decayed, um, it uh, produces hydrogen uh, through one of the reactions uh, that happens uh, when you're not cooling it down. And there was a buildup in hydrogen in top of uh, basically the reactor facilities. And as, once the hydrogen built up too much, it exploded. So I think if I remember right, they had four reactors there and one of them blew up. I can't remember the numbers for, but blows up, releases uh, fission products from the core. Uh, nothing anywhere near 
the problem of uh, Chernobyl, nothing like that. And in all honesty, nothing anywhere near the nukes we dropped in where New Mexico and Nevada. Mm. And so yeah. <laughs> the US dropped what, a thousand nukes on in the continental US and every single one of them is worse than Fukushima. Were so, they? Well, I mean, I guess they weren't on water, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's natural radiation you can go up in the mountains with the Geiger counter and find radioactive material. Really? And so, I mean, Fukushima didn't... Nobody got so much they their hair, hair was falling out or anything like that. So let's say that it was to leak out, like, quite a lot, or mm -hmm. like here near, like, INL or somewhere it was to mm -hmm. leak out. What are some of the preventative... I mean, if it goes past those preventative measures, those yeah, yeah, that so you mentioned... Yeah, gets out of the what, containment plan. What do people do? Uh, I mean, the, your main hope is it doesn't get in your water. Um... If it does get in your water, I guess you don't drink the fucking water. Yeah, right. Uh, so would it, if it did get in the uh, water source, I don't know. would it stay in there? Um, shit, man. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely am not qualified to say what would happen in that scenario. No, that's fine. Uh, it would depend how big the water source is. It would depend on the size of the leak. But if it, it um, if it's just it in the open air, mm -hmm. can it just kind of, you know, I don't know, what's the word called? dissolute spread <laughs> yeah just spread so much that it just kind of so i mean fishing products are all very heavy uh they're not light things so without an explosion or water to carry it i mean you wouldn't want to be a mile or two away hanging out but yeah I... well i know that some people who are against nuclear energy facilities mm -hmm. use that fukushima yeah as an example yeah. they go look what happened but you're saying that it was just because they just weren't as prepared as many yeah. nuclear facilities are. Yes, and not to mention they were built on the water. Like, right. And so there's so many things they could have done to prevent this from happening. Literally put your generators in the fifth story of a building. Build your storm wall higher. Don't even shut down your plant. When the uh, tsunami struck Fukushima, the plant was designed and took the tsunami fine. It just ran their reactors, and it would have powered and cooled itself down. Literally would have been fine if they just didn't shut it down and just ran their reactor. Dude, you know what? Have you seen um speak so where were the bombings in uh the US? They're in Nevada? Uh I or think New Mexico. New Mexico, Nevada around there, yeah. They I mean Have you seen so I went to go see cuz they're showing some movies in theaters of old movies mm -hmm. cuz nobody wants to release their movie now cuz they'll get like horrible <laughs> reviews. <laughs> but um it was the fourth Indiana Jones, uh the something crystal yeah, yeah. Is, is that whatever. the one where he hides in the fridge or whatever? Yeah, I wanted to ask you, like, that's the, that is, there are so many cringy, stupid parts in that movie where Indiana Jones finds himself at, like, a nuclear testing site in New Mexico or Nevada, mm -hmm. and he finds himself, like, there where it's happening. Oh, it, crap. It detonates. But he, right before it detonates, he gets himself into a fridge. <laughs> now. I mean, that's got to be better than not being in a if fridge. It, if, if the force didn't just obliterate everything, mm -hmm. would that, would a fridge be able to keep radiation from going into it? So, uh, everything prevents radiation. Uh, so, it really depends on what we're talking So. There's uh, two things you got to worry about with respect to radiation. There's the contamination and the radiation itself. So contamination is the thing emitting the radiation. So uh, the way we all, I, the easiest way I, I described it was contamination is shit and radiation is the stink. 
Um, and so, okay. uh, being contaminated, uh, a fridge could prevent you from being contaminated, right? If, but the instant you get out, if there's, uh, radi if there's radioactive, radiate, radioactive particles in the air that are undergoing decay and releasing radiation, uh, you're going to get those on you if they're out in the air. And so, uh, it could initially prevent those from getting on you, I guess. Uh, and then radiation itself, uh, everything stops radiation. So, but it just depends on to what extent. So I guess I shouldn't say stops, reduces it, okay. uh, reduces the amount you're receiving. And so uh, there's quite a few different types of radiation. And normally when you think of it, you're thinking of uh, photons. Uh, and so getting irradiated by gamma rays basically from the beta, uh, from the beta minus decay of the fission products is going to be the number one way you get it. And a fridge would work better than nothing. Well, uh, what about when, um, have you studied much about like Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> am, am I right that it rained soon after? Shit, I don't know, man. Because I don't, I don't know either. <laughs> but let's say, let's say it did, right? My, my, my expertise is definitely in the energy production and not the weapons. Okay. Well, <laughs> but, let's but say. We can speculate. Yeah, we let's can just, speculate. We can just say shit. Let's pretend that. Well, at least I'll pretend that I know what I'm talking about. I mean, I don't know much about it. So, in, let's say that it began to rain soon after. Okay. Would that, so does the radiation stay within that area, just kind of in the air everywhere? So, so like I said, that's the contamination you're thinking about. So those are the mm. particles that are undergoing decay and releasing radiation. So radiation is just light. And so um, oh, okay. particles undergo decay and then they just irradiate at the speed of light. And so uh, you're just getting exposed to those. Uh, gammas are the ones you're worried about in x-rays damaging uh, ultraviolet light can hurt you and then visible and under is not an issue and so beta minus decay releases gamma uh, gamma uh, photons and so it, but when you mentioned if it gets to the water if it that's get, that's the contamination that's the contamination the, the radioactive particles that are going to uh, decay and release that oh. radiation okay and so yeah there's when a bomb blows up I mean it has a certain amount of fission products in there under and the fission is what uh, what causes the explosion and so you take uranium-235 and it splits into two smaller atoms but uh, if you look at the atomic structure of normal atoms they don't have the same ratio of protons and neutrons that uranium-235 split in half does so if you look at carbon um, it has six protons and six neutrons if I remember right carbon-12 most carbon some I think there's carbon-13 uh, without the chart of nuclides in front of me I can't remember exactly but a uh, stable carbon atom normally has six protons and six neutrons. So it's even, right? If you look at uranium-235, though, uranium-235 has 92 protons, and <laughs> uh, whatever 235 subtract 92 is, so 135 plus 8, so 143. And so it has 143 neutrons and 92 protons. And so that's not a one-to-one -one ratio, like carbon is. Mm -hmm. And so when you split uranium, you end up with these two fission products that have way too many neutrons for how many protons they have when they're cut in half. So they're gonna be like xenon and stuff, some stuff a lot smaller, and it's got way too many neutrons, and so it's not stable, so it decays, and it releases energy. Oh, and okay. So that's the problem, is these leftover two particles after uranium, uranium fissions, and they're gonna release a lot of bad energy. So, um, in a place like uh, in, in the States, for example, with mm -hmm. our nuclear facilities, I know, for example, um, do they have similar precautions? Like, is there, are there international kind of regulations? Shit, I don't, I don't know. Uh, waste reprocessing is not my specialty either. 
Uh, I don't think there's, I mean, I, I, I would imagine if they are, they're just U.S. regulations because we essentially like pioneered all this right. like, the Manhattan Project. and uh, U.S. seems to just follow its own. Yeah, exactly. We just probably do what we want. So I can't imagine the U.N.'s telling us what to do with Right. <laughs> yeah, in, in our own country and stuff. But, um, well, then let's move to something that you feel more, more passionate, more passionate about, more <laughs> comfortable with. Nuclear, not nuclear, nuclear energy. Okay. Anything energy source, right? Energy would be your... I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with a lot of stuff. That's what we talked about last time, right? Energy sources. It is. I found out when, after we recorded it, because I don't remember a whole lot because I had my seizure before or after. No, that was the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> you were drunk as shit, dude. <laughs> The, the alcohol and the hard drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the prostitutes, dude, very distracted. <laughs> but Chris said that um, Andrew came in at a point. When we were talking? Did he? I don't know. Dude, my memory is awful. Yeah, gosh. Both of them. Maybe you had a seizure that day as well. Well, I think dude. I was drinking, so. Yeah, you were drinking. I had a seizure. Just a um, normal day. It was just a normal day, but the recording. Flawless. Beautiful. <laughs> it was amazing. But really, um, I don't know why I brought up the, the thing about the nuclear um, 9-11. 9-11? I thought that... We were talking about conspiracy theories, right? Did you have a nuclear conspiracy theory? Um, let me think of some. I like to explore the conspiracies on the web. And... Uh, do you ever hear, I'm sure you all, you encounter people saying just bogus stuff about nuclear energy all the time. Oh yeah, dude. Uh, in Charleston, we had two operating nuclear reactors uh, for our students to essentially practice on. So they were, really? they were old, two old S5W submarines and they brought them up, uh, brought them up the river there and they're just in the river operating nuclear sub submarines. Uh, they have a lot of the propulsion train and everything taken out of them, so they're not uh, able to actually go out to the ocean, but the nuclear reactor is operating. And they're old old plants, and our students learn the theory in nuclear power school, and then they learn the practice in uh, uh, prototype is what we call the school down there. So it's like when they, when they actually get a physical experience before they go out to the fleet, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many times when I told people what I did there uh, that weren't part of the military, so just normal civilians around... Like, oh yeah, I work over at the nuclear power school. Like, oh, I hate that place. And then they would proceed to tell me their nuclear horror stories. Uh, and I had one woman that told me all about her sister that lived down in Florida near a nuclear plant. And she's like, oh, I won't even visit her. I'm so terrified. Really? <laughs> and I was just, the whole time, all I could think was... Just scared was, to be around it? Well, yeah. And all I could think was, is like, we got two operating plants like three miles from here, lady. Like, And she and probably she has, is unaware of it. She has no idea. And not only that, but they're, they're mobile plants. So the one her sister's living next to is designed and built to operate on land. And it's stable, which is a much easier design. If you ask me right now, design a reactor that's going to float in the ocean or design one that's going to sit here on the land, I can tell you which one's a hell of a lot easier. Mm. And so we got 
got two mobile plants. They're like 50, 60 years old, and we got 18-year-olds practicing. <laughs> <laughs> they're on, it's entirely safe. I don't want to give an impression it's not safe. But if you're a reactionary that's going to freak out over the nuclear plant down at your sister's house, like you should definitely be freaking out over the two plants near the next door. Yeah, maybe it's best that this lady doesn't know. <laughs> no, I didn't tell her. I was just like, this is hilarious to have you sit here and complain to me about how terrifying and scary it is. So do you know um, if the Navy has... I'd imagine they have probably nuclear capabilities on submarines along the coast. So that How does is that work? by does that... far the most top secret information for the so submarine fleet. So go on, fleet. explain. So I don't Give know me that everything you know. I don't know that information. Or you have to just say you don't know. Yeah, I have to say it because obviously after being out of the Navy for three years, they keep me in the loop on the, <laughs> on the, the placement of boomer submarines with the nukes on them. George, so they're called. <laughs> it's moved up the coast. It's outside of Florida. We heard you're going to be on a podcast. <laughs> Make sure. <laughs> with an idiot that's hosting. So, so these, these submarines, uh, the boomer submarines is what they're called. Uh, they have a more technical name, which I should know because I've said it a million times, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, ballistic missile submarine is, uh, but there's a specific name. Anyways, uh, they're so secret where they're at that once they leave port in the United States, the only place they port uh, is the United States. Once they leave, they just leave and nobody knows where they're at. They don't ever stop. Well, someone knows, right? Well, the, obviously the government knows. But, and like uh, an admiral general? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's going to be a need to know. It's not like you make sure 100,000 people in the military know this. You, you're <laughs> yeah. gonna, it's, it's, there's no reason, like, if you're a two-star admiral and you're dealing with carriers in the Pacific, there's no reason you need to know where your Atlantic submarines are at. Right. And so they probably don't know it. Now, the president obviously is going to know and certain certain key military officials, but... That's Do you by think far that's a good idea? Biggest national security. That the president, like. Definitely. <laughs> no, but think about it. Think about it. Like, let's say I became president, like, overnight. It's like okay. something happened, right? It's a likely and scenario. And suddenly I'm president, right? Yep. And then all of a sudden I have access to all this information. Dude, Is the, that a good idea? It's the basis of democracy, man. No, it's not. It says who? So, so who else controls the name? Dude, when they came up with democracy in ancient Greece. They didn't know anything about nuclear okay, submarines. It's the basis of our democracy that the president has ultimate authority being elected by the people. The only other option is rich people control everything, which is essentially just a That's kind of how it is now. I mean, they do control it, but at least people are able to vote on the president and have some say in it. So if the president yeah, starts doing some really bad shit, they can No, George, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> Definitely I'm wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. But, um, okay, I'll, I'll grant you that. I'll grant That's a good point. But when it comes to nuclear energy, mm -hmm. what was your training like? So after you got your bachelor's degree in nuclear yep. engin in engineering. Mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering. Then you went to the Navy, and then yes. did you have additional courses, additional classes, and things yeah, like that? Yeah, so uh, I had a... God, I can't believe I can't remember. Uh, I had a six-week training course up in Rhode Island just on how to be an officer so I don't look like an idiot. Was uh, that pretty... Hard? No, it was so easy. Really? It was like a cakewalk? It <laughs> wasn't so, like some marine boot camp? So there's like three levels of uh, training, right, that the military undergoes. Or three common levels. There's thousands of different trainings. But most common you hear about is boot camp. Uh, that's for enlisted soldiers. Uh, I didn't do that. The second is called officer candidate school. And these are for uh, college graduates that want to be officers. And at this point, they're people they want to weed out. And so when you watch, like, 
tough military uh, shows like An Officer and a Gentleman and shit where he's out doing push-ups in the rain, that's OCS, Officer Candidate School. Uh, and I didn't do that, but it was at the same school I was at, and it looked a lot harder than what I was doing. <laughs> I did what's called ODS, which is Officer Development School. It used to be called Officer Indoctrination School. Uh, but the purpose of ODS is them making officers that are in higher demand, that they are less willing to lose. And so while I got the training and they tried to make it as similar to Officer Candidate School, OCS is possible. Uh, to be like, yeah, you're real officers, you really had to undergo the grueling, horrible thing. The last thing they wanted, I was there with like doctors and nurses, and like, I was there with an eye surgeon. Like, they're, they're there with people that the military needs. And so, like, if one of them's like, shit, I can't handle this, it's too hard, I'm out, I don't want to join the military. The military's like, oh, fuck, like, we right. spent so much money, we tried so hard to get you here. And so that's the reason they don't send. So they do the bare to- minimum. I mean, it's not the bare minimum. The point is, but is they if make you start, it. If you they don't make it out, so that you you're you're gonna leave because it's too hard. Yeah, if you start bitching out and be like, I don't want to run this. Um, I mean, it really depends on the scenario. But they're not trying to get rid of the surgeon. So the school I went to was more about not, you know, indoctrinating you as an officer, teaching you how to be an officer, but not trying to wash you out. Did you have to take any preliminary tests? Yeah, I actually had to do an interv- interview with the head of the nuclear navy, uh, four-star admiral, uh, Admiral Donald. Really? What yeah, was that like? It was terrifying. Oh, I bet. And so, before, so four-star admiral, was yeah. he all decked out and oh, all yeah. the, everything, oh, yeah. all the medals and everything? Oh, yeah. He just looked like a killer? Yeah, yeah. So the um, current uh, head of the navy, the CNO, chief naval operations, uh, he was the next admiral after Admiral Donald to take that position. And so it's like probably top five guys in the Navy, uh, this four-star admiral I had to interview with when I did it. And, uh, yeah, I go in and there's like Secret Service with like earpieces and stuff bringing me in, you know, to talk to him. I sit down and I don't even remember what we talked about. I was just so high-strung. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, 22 or 21 or whatever. So what were some of the questions he was asking? That's what I said. I don't remember. Oh, you don't really even remember that? So before I got to him, I had to do interviews with uh, some commanders and captains at Naval Reactors out in Washington, D.C. And before that, I had to deal with recruiters here in, uh, well, not here, but in Salt Lake. Uh, and so I got recruited in Salt Lake, and then they set up a trip for me to go out there, and it was like a three-day trip. I went out there with a group of other candidates who wanted to do basically positions in the nuclear navy so we went out to naval reactors in dc and did interviews with these guys so i do remember some of the questions i got asked uh by the captains and commanders that i interviewed with before going to the admiral i mean i I think the admiral probably asked me like why do you want to do this job you know something something pretty simple and i was only in there for like two minutes but it was terrifying (laughs) i I can't imagine was he uh was he kind of just intimidating looking at him like then just his his kind of demeanor i think i think that's definitely the point of it though too is he wants to see how you react under this stressful situation like if you're going to start crying or you know if you can't handle going in there because we did have one person that gave up before going in uh they they were so unconfident in the results of their first three interviews um, that they were like, I'm done. I just, you know, obviously I failed and they didn't even, they didn't even try to show up. So n- they never told us if that person passed or failed or not. They just left. Uh, so you can fail the yeah, interviews. I yeah, mean, like we, the- we had probably four people that didn't, didn't do good enough on the interviews. They didn't even get an interview with the Admiral. they the captains or commanders, whoever they interviewed with was just like, nah, that guy's not good enough. See ya. I think that's really impressive that you had to speak with somebody at such a high level. It was terrifying. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that an admiral would do something like that, that he would be 
but I guess your position is much more was much more difficult to come by yeah, than I had any idea. I think I think they struggled sometimes to fill the position. I don't know if it was that difficult. I, I think it was more of a Admiral Rickover, the guy that started the nuclear program for the U.S. Navy. He started the tradition, so I think it was more of like a tradition and like uh, pressuring these people. I don't think it was so much like, oh, George is so badass. Well, you <laughs> are. With but a four-star didn't, admiral. So didn't you take what is that military test that you that people take? In, so you took that and you did very well, though. Yeah, but I mean that was in high school. Like, but isn't that kind of like a test of? how good you're going to be a mechanic. And and, and then, <laughs> oh, worked, really? It's like a mechanic? Yeah, because I worked on construction with my dad and had decent math scores. But then I once you do out. that, I'd imagine that puts you on the radar I don't, for I the military. Do I they? Or maybe not. Maybe they're like, uh, let's not actually ask him to join the Navy I doubt, I doubt or the military. That. Let's for, get... That's that's an enlisted test. Oh, so it's yeah. for the... It's just they're trying to recruit kids out of high school. And so... I was um, asked to sign one of those things. Nice. To get more information, and uh, put Cody Thompson's I put, address down. I put my I put my name as John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> oh, nice! <laughs> I never got a call though. I did put my number, but I never got a call. But I took the. I don't even remember if I took that test. It would have been really bad, dude, because uh, dude, my math scores. Range, man, you know, that's true. I worked at a gas station. You know more mechanic stuff than I do. <laughs> You're basically a car mechanic, dude. Yeah, dude. I know all about petroleum. <laughs> The gas goes in here. <laughs> and so once you did all of that, once you got accepted, um, then you had the you had the six so you had the six weeks of officer training and then yes. did you have like a specialized Yes, yeah, so then I school. went to power school and they were like, Alright, we're gonna have you teach uh, physics here, which it sounds more impressive than it is. It wasn't even calculus based physics, so it was just more about trying to help the students understand what they're operating more than it was teaching them how to design a nuclear reactor. And so uh, I learned all about the physics of how the reactor operates there. I already had some general idea, um, but I didn't understand the specifics of our reactors and how they work. So that was the more training I got was more specific to training these students about the stuff they're going to be learning and stuff they need to understand to operate a submarine. Because a lot of their jobs uh, a robot could do but a robot can't respond to problems and casualties. And so uh, a lot of the stuff is routine, but uh, you need somebody thinking and capable of addressing issues. Um, Three Mile Island's the perfect example. They did literally the very worst possible thing they could do under that casualty. Um, it's gotta be because of poor training, because it's literally the worst thing you can do. What was, what was it that they, they did? They turn off their pumps. So remember earlier I was saying about Fukushima, the biggest problem is cooling. Oh, they just let it melt down. They just let it melt down. They turned off their pumps because they're worried about a pressure casualty, right? And uh, a pressure casualty can be pro uh, can be an issue. Um, and so they, they worried they had this steam bubble building up in their pressurizer, and they're worried about that exploding, right? And your pressurizer blowing up is an issue, but it's extremely unlikely in the design because you have pressure relief valves. So if it gets too high a pressure, your pressure relief valves open and let the pressure out. Um, but you technically can have a steam casualty. Your pressurizer can get high enough pressure and blow up. That, that is a possibility. It's just extremely unlikely, right? And so they're scared of this casualty, and so they literally traded this extremely unlikely casualty, and they traded it for a guaranteed meltdown. They're like, we're just going to turn off our coolant pumps and sit on our hands. And that's not a, oh, it's a small probability, high probability. It's guaranteed your reactor will melt down, and it will release fission products into the atmosphere. It will break contamination if you turn off your coolant pumps and wait. 
It's guaranteed. There's no question. So was that just it, I'd imagine that that wasn't just one no, was man's a, decision. It was it was a group, right? Yeah. And yeah. so what what do you think they were thinking? Why would they make that decision? So they didn't know what was going on. They had a lot of alarms going off and they weren't sure what's going on in the course. Not like you can just walk into the nuclear reactor and be like, what exactly is happening in here? Right? But the number one thing you should know running into a reactor, well, maybe not the number one. One of the very high things you should know is when you shut down, you gotta cool down your plant. You gotta cool it down. And so I've never been in, in a nuclear catastrophe scenario where I was thinking about what to do and how, but, uh, Cooling down the plant is what we always told our students. After you shut down, that's the very next thing you do because the reactor shut down, power is no longer being produced. What do we do next? We make sure we cool down that core because if we don't cool it down, it's just gonna melt. And so that's what they didn't do. They literally shut off their pumps because they're worried about a high pressure, which a concern, pressurizer blowing up, steam casualty, uh, that's an issue, you don't want that to happen, but that's only a probability. You know, the core meltdown's a certainty if you're not cooling it down. And that's what happened. Their core started melting down until I think it took two or three days. And uh, the engineering designing team that designed the reactor, I believe uh, they had to fly out there because of the press and the information that was uh, just what was happening. Uh, they weren't able to call them because they only had a certain number of phone lines, so they couldn't get in touch with them. So I believe the engineering team that designed it flew out there and said, hey, turn your pumps on, please. And they turned the pumps back on and cooled down. Obviously oversimplified. But this what a terrifying thing though oh yeah and so but understanding what's happening in a nuclear reactor understanding why it's happening uh that's basically what we taught and mm. I, I didn't teach them about nuclear physics so they could design a reactor and build a bomb or anything like that it was just you're going to be operating these things you need to understand what's causing them to work so that if something bad happens you can understand how to deal with it and i'd imagine they were mostly around your age weren't they yeah, so uh, my students, so you could teach either officers or enlisted. If I taught officers, they would have been my age or older. Uh, the enlisted students, I had a couple students that were older than me, but uh, the majority of them were like 18 to 20. So What allowed them to take that course? I'm sure they had to pass certain yeah, things. Yeah, so the enlisted Navy uh, is made up of just pretty much uh, people that join the normal military, right? So uh, right out of high school. Um, and the nuclear navy inside of the listed navy is the probably most academically rigorous so when they join if you have good high school grades you have good ASVAB grades I don't know if they look at the ACT or not but if you have basically good academic grades um, that prove that you're able to sit down and study the recruiter is going to try to be pushing you to become a nuke uh, go to nuclear power school and learn to be on uh, work on a nuclear reactor and so what were some of the scores that they were looking at for you did they look at your ASVAB or did they look at... Um... No, mine, mine was just my gradu uh, undergraduate degree. Okay, so, so they, they looked, looked at that at, and they looked at the grades yeah, and scores. Yeah, they just looked at my engineering and then the, the talking to those uh, captains and uh, commanders and the admiral. That was the other determining factor. But yeah, initially it was just GPA in my undergrad. And then uh, then I went out and did that interview in D.C. And that was... Now, is this true? Because I heard rumors and I've, I've bragged about you. Whether Huge whether it's dog, true or not. Yeah. two inches. <laughs> Maybe two and a half. Two it, and a half. It, it wow, is, dude. It's true, dude. Dang. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> Sorry. The rumor is that you really didn't even study. You rarely studied. In college? Or yeah. In yeah. your undergrad. Is that true? Not much, yeah. I, 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 you I just kind of... I drank a lot. And you just partied, drank, 
I mean, I did the work. Played you know? uh, Super Smash Bros. Oh, dude, I love some Smash. And and then and then you just went to class and took the test. I mean, I, I I did the homework and stuff, so it wasn't like I put stuff off, but. But you didn't really study. I mean, I didn't I didn't in high school either. That was. Dude, it's that Christensen intelligence, man. James has it, not like you have it. James is kind of like. He's kind of smart, but he has to really <laughs> work for it. <laughs> yeah. God, he's an idiot. <laughs> I'm just no. kidding. I'm just kidding. No, the Christiansons are. No, I mean I, I studied. Geniuses. I, I studied. It was just I'm I'm good at school, dude. I'm bad at other things, man. Bad at. <laughs> Go on. Uh, what are you bad at? Let's talk about that. It's a good question. Uh, social interaction, man. Just say mean things to people or ignore people don't do you think in contact with people does alcohol help that oh yeah so it kind of um i'm a i'm a celebrity when i'm drunk dude really so let's, no, no, it, does it, I, I was being sarcastic alcohol does not help it at all. oh it doesn't i would imagine that it would help kind of like lower you, the inhibitions it makes you think you're good at social interactions i, I oh i would imagine if you spoke to the people i've interacted with a lot <laughs> is he better oh so hammered? it makes you think you're going <laughs> yeah, great yeah, yeah. It lowers okay your inhibitions right I, I doubt it makes you any better at it though I mean, the only thing I'd imagine though it would kind of take that edge off, so that yeah. yeah, if it improves confidence, then if you do something or say something that's awkward, mm-hmm. that and you it doesn't bother you that you did, it may make other people less mm-hmm. bothered by it. Yeah, does so that make sense? I think my I don't think my problem is as worried about being awkward or being bothered about that stuff. I think my problem is knowing what knowing what's inappropriate. I think I, I think I get in trouble a lot. No, I, I just don't give a shit. I think you did pretty well though. Like I mean, in those interviews with people, it's not like you're I, just I mean, yelling I can, out I can things. Fake it, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's no, just the time. It's not hard to fake it with strangers for twenty minutes. You know, <laughs> right? And when you have that pressure of an admiral <laughs> yeah, just yeah, staring yeah. down you. Yeah, no, 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 no. no. So, um, I was talking to you in I think in Salt Lake, and I asked. Is it true, because my brother's an engineer as well, mm-hmm. is it true that engineers, like there are some stereotypes with majors and, and disciplines um, that there are, that they may struggle, that like struggling socially yeah. may be something that some people in engineering seem to struggle with. Definitely. Why do you think that is? Uh, and same with like computer science is another one. I would imagine the thing that makes them gravitate towards engineering being good at math, liking studying, liking spending time on the computer. I would imagine those things also contribute to them spending less time with, uh, I don't know, I guess, pe- not necessarily. Because those are kind peers, of solitary studies yeah, in a way. I mean. And then they probably, I don't know, as a kid, you don't have any social understanding. So I would guess people that are good at that stuff, maybe, maybe they have like a superiority complex or. I don't know, I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I. Neither am I. I I'm yeah, we're I'm just kind of freewheeling just, just going. I, <laughs> well, according to the research I've done. <laughs> it, it's just it's just my like ignorant observations of like, oh I see a generality over here. I see a generality yeah, over here. Yeah. And I've just noticed that with engineers and with um people in computer science, they seem to kind of have that anxiety, social anxiety. Yeah. And struggling in that way. And like, and maybe it ta- maybe it kind of requires a type of personality that, I mean, you're in no way like that. In my, in my mind, you're in no way like that. But I see, I do see some people in computer science 
that maybe it requires a type of person who is okay with being just solitary dealing with mm -hmm. the coding, for example. And um, because I don't, like, you'd probably stay just with your computer all day coding. <laughs> just, just, just you hanging out, hacking the mainframe. Yeah, you and zeros and ones. And uh, I love coding in binary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do people do that anymore? That, that's like that's like machine code, dude. I'm that's that's certain nobody that, knows in binary. That's like way, yeah, yeah. way deep. You gotta be just super smart to do that, dude. So what what have you been doing lately? Uh, I was up in Island Park, uh, repairing my parents' cabin, trying to get it functional again. So that was fun. Stepped on a nail today, so. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to play soccer tomorrow. Yeah, you might have tetanus, dude. Yeah. When was the last time you had that tested? It was like two or three years ago. I got a tetanus booster, so I probably oh. need to get one tomorrow morning. Yeah. So, and hopefully there's no piece of uh, shoe or sock inside of my uh, foot right now. So. Yeah. That's that's the main worry with a. Uh, dude, in nail puncture wound. In high school, I okay. So my brother <laughs> bought me for a Christmas present. It was like a joke gift. It was a giant wrench. I mean, like, the, like the size of a bat. It was it metal? Yeah, and it was metal. Shit. And he, I don't know. It was, you know, it was funny, and I was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. It could be like a self-defense weapon or something. Yeah. So I keep it in my room, but I, I had it on my dresser, and I, one day, in the summer, I was moving things around, and I knocked it off my dresser. It landed like the sharp part mm -hmm. of the wrench yep. um, you know what i mean it landed on my foot and i wasn't wearing oh shit dude shoes or socks that thing, what, weighed like 20 pounds or something yeah it was freaking heavy and uh, unfortunately it didn't break anything but it created like a puncture mm -hmm. i didn't think anything of it <laughs> my my Was the wrench clean at least I mean, it, I wasn't using it on things. Like, I wasn't trying to, like, dismantle like a lamppost. It wasn't, like, rusted over or something, right? Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. It was clean. It was okay, clean. Okay. Not used. I didn't leave it out in the rain or anything. And, uh... I've been using it in your sexual exploits. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what what that would be used for. I don't know who's oh, yeah, using that. I have no idea. Right, right, I'm right. completely unfamiliar with that. But so I had this like horrible puncture, but I thought, you know, not knowing anything about biology and just normal kind of like health and maintenance of my body, I just put on a sock and uh, my watch it? my soccer no I didn't my soccer <laughs> my soccer cleats and I went out in the hot sun and I played soccer for several hours and um, in the next couple of days. My foot really, really hurt, and it was swollen and blue and black and Did purple. Did you show anybody? And I kind of just thought, like, maybe oh I'll God, walk it off, kind of like. You could have lost your foot. I know. Yeah, I later learned that. Oh. And eventually it got so bad that I went to my dad, and I was like, like, something's, something's up with my foot. Like, look at it. It's swollen. It looks like just, like, like 17 cobras oh bit it. God, dude. And... And he's like, yeah, you definitely need to go to the hospital. Took me to the hospital, and they said, you need to stay overnight, definitely. Wow. Um, you have... Um, you had staph infection? I had staph infection. Wow. And, you almost lost your foot then. And, yeah, they said that... Um, yeah, if, if I wouldn't have gotten it cared for... I guess staph infection also keeps going further. So, like, yeah. had I been born in 1800s, 
they would have just had to cut off Chop. my foot. At that point, yes. Right there, just boom. But I would imagine if you had been born in the 1800s, you would know how important it was to not just <laughs> drop yeah. a wrench on your foot and ignore it. Dude, <laughs> I know. First world problems, dude. <laughs> I, I was just kind of, I just was naive to how important my foot was. But, um, like, yeah, if I was back in the day where I had to, like, chop wood and stuff, I would have known, like, a foot is important. You probably had a medicine woman that rubbed some stuff. Well, you would have thought that I would have thought a foot was important when I'm playing soccer. Yeah. But. Well, like, did you not think back to, like, when you cut yourself when you were a kid and your mom and dad would wash that shit out to you? Did you not think back? and Like, I wonder why they did that. <laughs> <laughs> you were just like, nah. No, they just hate me. I, I they guess like to hurt me after I get hurt. My mind wandered elsewhere. It's it's like the, um, what is it, like, the intelligent professor? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. minus my, like, minus nah, the nah, intelligence. Nah, dude, you just. But it was just. Stuck just, in your books, dude. Just, yeah. That big brain thing, dude. <laughs> Just thinking about other things that don't matter. Dude, I've I've heard that there were stories of, like, uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant. Mm -hmm. He was so, like, that absent-minded professor that he was reading and he fell into, like, a hole. (laughs) And it was like... (laughs) That was you, dude. That was... Yeah, that was me minus the intelligence, but... dude, it's you and Kant. So, yeah. And so... And so, yeah, so I had to get, like, an IV drip with me and... (laughs) And, um, and I was like, I remember asking the guy, like, could this be anything like, so this is stuff. Could it be like anything worse? And he's like, well, there's been like, a, a flesh eating disease that's been going around. And I just was like, thanks. Why did you tell me that? <laughs> like, I'm scared right now. I have like the emotional intelligence of a child. You were looking for reassurance, and he's yeah. Like, oh yeah, it could Don't. be a lot worse. <laughs> Flesh eating disease. But how old were you? Like sixteen? I mean, I was like sixteen. Yeah. He's like, oh yeah, kid. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you probably got this flesh eating disease. It's gonna take over your body. You may end up just being a head after this. But the, I, I didn't know that it would like continue up. Yeah. Like it would just keep going that's up my leg until it, like reason, reaches your heart or that's something. That's the reason they had to amputate limbs back in the day. Ah, dude, that's so messed Infection, up. Dude. Think about that. Think about. So there were like five hundred thousand plus, mostly boys, like young boys, eighteen, nineteen, sixteen. Go on. In <laughs> you've got my interest. What, what are we no, about? <laughs> I'm build, I'm building up to it. Suspense. Who were killed in the Civil War? Jesus. And do I have that right? I don't know. That sounds right. Five hundred thousand. I know it's the highest American casualties out of any war, but I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. That that sounds right. Five hundred thousand. That's so. And, you know, Union and mm-hmm. Confederacy. Um, a long time. But just thinking about at that time, like a wound, how if you got shot, even if it was like a clean shot, like it went through a part of your body where it didn't get any vital Mm -hmm. organs or anything like that, that wound, if not taken care of extremely well, could have, you could have easily gotten infected and then died from that infection. Yeah. And how painful of a death would that have been and how slow. Yeah, especially if you're getting wounded not on a limb, right? So on the limb, they would take care of it and try to see if it would heal. And then when it was apparent that the infection was spreading, you lose the limb. Civil War, it must have been just a nightmare. Dude, I mean, I can't during imagine. That time must have been a nightmare, dude. And that was what? Not even 200 well, years ago. That wasn't ago. even long ago. Well, just but that's so horrible because there are horrible things. You don't you you don't have to go far to find horrible things. You can go to a random person on the street 
and learn about something in their life that is horrible. Of course. But um, what is he bringing up? I mean, th- this mainly just comes up to the discussion, and I don't want to just shit talk my roommate. Uh, oh, no, we don't shit talk, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, we love Andrew. Beautiful Andrew. Uh, this mainly just comes up when we're talking about the conditions of the United States. Uh, Andrew believes there's a revolution coming, and I don't believe there is one. Uh, and my argument is always, I think Americans are too rich, happy, and apathetic to do any type of revolution. Like a, a real revolution. Yeah, yeah, overthrowing like, the government. Uh, one that would with cause, arms. Well, yeah, one that would cause economic collapse. You know, we're going to destabilize the U.S. government and we're going to put our own, own new government in place, right? It's just going to... Like com- a French revolution. Yeah, yeah, or the American revolution against the British back in the day, right? So just going to completely destabilize the current central government and replace it with something else, right? It would just shit on the U.S. economy and all standard of living that's currently existing in the United States and I don't see Americans doing it considering how amazing our lives are and that was the point I was giving to the Civil War is in comparison to the Civil War Americans live like gods yeah. and that was only 200 years ago comparison to 99.9999% of our ancestors Americans we live in such comfort we live in so much comfort poverty uh, many of us are pampered even if I were to lose my so even if I were to lose my apartment lose my job mm-hmm. i would still it would be a bad situation but i would still be able to live in my car yeah i and own if, this car and if you hurt yourself you could still go to the emergency room i could still go to the emergency room i could still go to a friend's house yep. i could still go to a family member's house i mean you could still go places to get free food right i could still go places to get and obviously not an amazing life but better than many who lived throughout history yeah and, and it's not that high a percentage of people in the united states living that and so uh i'm i'm not i'm not saying homeless people don't need help or anything like that my point is it's the overall general u.s populace is in a great position i'm not saying every single absolute american is an amazing position my point is i think enough enough americans a high enough percentage just live such amazing lives why would they ever try to do something like that do you think it's easy then for people to focus on the uh small kind of like the minority issue not minority as in race or anything like that but the minority as in it's the exception yeah i mean it's it's what it's what sells right you could you, you don't sell on the news that oh the number of people killed in wars this year is less than last year right or not, or look at all these percentage. cops that you know responded to yeah horrific things and they were heroic mm-hmm. in what they did that doesn't sell nearly as much as pointing at horrible bad things and so, yeah, it's just going to appear that things are worse. But if you look at domestic violence, if you look at homicides, you look at all these different statistics about bad things, and they're becoming less and less prevalent. If you look at people that live from appendicitis, if you look at how old somebody with AIDS lives, there's all these numbers that just show life is getting better and better. You know, I remember when you had appendicitis. Yeah. Years and years ago. Was Weren't you in New York? Yeah, well, it ruptured in New York. That's when I got sick. But we drove all the way down the coast to Maryland. We stayed in Salisbury, Maryland with some family friends. And uh, I think I had it for three days where I was just vomiting and my parents thought I had the flu. And then eventually my mom was like, well, this is day four and he's still thrown up. We need to take I him mean, to the doctor. It, it must have been a pain that was far worse than... Just hurt, your average sickness. I mean, it must have been... my foot, that's for sure. <laughs> it must have been like a... Sh- was it a sharp pain? Uh, so I was 16 when it happened, and I don't, I don't really remember other than just the nausea and just like the feeling sick. I don't remember a sharp, sharp pain. 
but uh, I just felt if like shit. I, if there, if you applied pressure down there, like by your appendix, would it have hurt? So I don't remember that hurting. Um, I don't know. The doctor, when I was on the table to get my appendix out, he slapped the bottom of my feet, and then he had me jump. And he said, it's probably not appendicitis because when I slapped his feet here, he should have jumped off the table. And he's like, he didn't even react. So Well, because of the pressure, it would uh, have I guess hurt just your shock appendix up, somehow? Shock up your legs. Okay. Jars it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly what. But yeah, he slapped my feet and said, oh yeah, he probably doesn't have an appendicitis. But he's like, if he's been thrown up this long, it's probably not the flu based on how he's reacting. So they had me drink some contrast and it. Um, when you drink this stuff, it shows up on an x-ray. It leaked all over the inside of my abdomen. I'm like, okay, well, something's down there leaking. It's probably the appendix. Wow. Yeah, and so uh, my left side hurt um, instead of my right side, so the appendix is on the right. But because I'd been sleeping on my left side, apparently the, I guess, fecal matter is what's in there that was leaking and basically causing an infection in my abdomen was uh, built up on the left side over here. The There's fecal matter? Well, yeah, it's, it's your appendix is on your lower intestine. And so when it ruptures, it shit just goes inside your uh, really abdominal cavity. Yeah. So it create it creates um, an opening from that intestine. From the intestine, yep. And so mine, mine, they said it was uh, kind of a weeping effect. It wasn't just completely ruptured, gushing out crap into the rest of my body, but it was letting out enough that it was causing an issue. So and so it, hole in it because but, you were sleeping on your left side, it was going through your yeah, left yeah, side. Since, yeah, it, it kind of fell on that left side, and they're like, it can't be an appendicitis because this left side w shouldn't be hurting. And so, uh, so after they gave you a surgery, did they give you? Well, they gave me the contrast give you to drink in it. Contrast. Leaked, it leaked everywhere. It wasn't stuck inside my intestines. I drank it, and they took an X-ray, and they're like, "All right, that's in his abdominal cavity. He's leaking." Wow. And so, and so then they cut the appendix out because they assumed that was the offending culprit, and it had a hole in it. When they, put it, or I don't know if it had a direct hole in it, but they they told me when they pulled it out that it was definitely the appendix that was leaking fecal matter into your body and uh, I was better afterwards, so. Does the body just kind of naturally take care of what waste was leaked out? I mean, it tries, but uh, an appendicitis is almost certainly a death sentence without a surgery. See, that's, see, and that's what made me wonder, like, um, yeah, had you had that? Yeah, pretty much everybody that had years appendicitis ago, died. 200 years ago, you would have died. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know when they started doing appendectomies. It's one of the most routine surgeries now, but yeah. Before antibiotics, for sure. When did penicillin come about? That was was that World War Two. Um, penicillin War was right after World War, uh, right after the Civil War, I believe. Oh, right after. Yeah, I want to say within the twenty years after the Civil War. And in and it. It might have actually even had been discovered and being used, but it wasn't being used in the Civil War. See, this is like the negative, uh, cynical side of. I guess it's not really necessarily cynical, but. Um, I think it's great, of course, that penicillin was discovered then, but why couldn't it have been discovered in, you know, Dude, have you heard anything Greece. about antibiotic-resistant bacteria? No. All right, so anytime you take penicillin, or I don't know that's if they give out penicillin anymore, they have different types of uh, uh, antibiotics that basically fight bacteria, right? They fight infection. Um, imagine you have your foot staph infection, right? Right. And then I say, all right, we're going to give you some antibiotics to kill the bacteria in there to prevent your infection from happening, right? And so instead of using an IV drip is what, what you got because your infection was so advanced, had you gone maybe a little bit earlier um, and your infection wasn't that bad, instead of giving you an IV drip and keeping you there, they might have given you an oral antibiotic that you ate, right? Mm. Now imagine 
you eat uh, one antibiotic pill or whatever that you're supposed to eat, and you're supposed to eat it for maybe 14 days. The doctor gives you an antibiotic, says eat this for 14 days. And you eat the first pill, feel good. Next day you eat the second pill, feel even better. And by day three, you're like, I'm good. You're like, well, why would I eat these other 12 pills? I'm feeling fine. You stop eating them, right? Now, maybe the antibiotic killed all the bacteria down in your foot. But the bacteria it hasn't killed yet is most likely the strongest bacteria that is in the foot that's resistant to the antibiotic. Now, 14 days may kill all of it. It probably will. That's why the doctor prescribed you with antibiotics. But if the antibiotic doesn't kill the bacteria in your foot in those 14 days, whatever is left is resistant to that antibiotic. And so currently there are strains of antibiotics that are commonly used and because they're used so frequently, um, certain bacteria survives basically either because patients don't um, take the full dose of the antibiotic they're supposed to be taking or just from natural mutations. But bacteria is becoming resistant to these antibiotics. So you can go in to the doctor with an infection like yours. They can prescribe you an antibiotic that 50 years ago, 100 years ago, would just have demolished the bacteria in your foot. They can prescribe it to you and then you can take it and it doesn't kill the bacteria at all because this bacteria is resistant to that strain of antibiotic you have. And there's speculations that eventually within, depending on who you listen to and what you see, there's speculations that within the next hundred years, we won't have any antibiotics that work against bacteria and we'll be back to civil war time. So will we just have to... So it's continually coming up with new ones. C coming up with new ways to beat bacteria exactly and then bacteria is becoming resistant to the old ways we use against it. So are our bodies becoming resistant to penicillin? Um, it's not our bodies, it's the bacteria in the infection that's becoming resistant to the penicillin. Oh, I see. And so uh, there's strains of these bacteria though that are antibiotic resistant. Uh, do you know what the number one infectious disease killer uh, on the, in the world is? They used to call it consumption, I think, back in oh, medieval I've, times. I've read about consumption. Tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, yep. TB. So TB is the number one infectious disease killer on the planet. Uh, if you get tuberculosis and you get an antibiotic-resistant strain, there's a decent chance that we can't cure you if it's, if it's a specific antibiotic-resistant strain. Now, I think most of them are curable, but there are certain strains of this tuberculosis that just aren't curable because it's the most common... Uh, communicable disease that kills people at high rates like obviously the common cold spore uh common but that's a virus right and so tb uh they fight it with antibiotics and it's becoming more and more resistant to these antibiotics dude that's a great point i never even it's actually in my opinion the greatest argument for veganism uh, well, how so so mass meat production uses antibiotics to keep the animals healthy and it produces antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria in those farm animals and so it's probably the, I mean, humans using antibiotics. So us eating meat is actually mm -hmm. making it so that okay, we... Okay, so not us eating meat. It's they give the farm animals antibiotics to keep them healthy. But then that transfers to us. No, no, no. The bacteria in the farm animals then becomes resistant to the antibiotics. Oh, oh, okay. Yep, yep. And then, then their bacteria spreads and we have to deal with these antibiotic resistant bacteria. That's crazy. Yeah, so... Uh, in my opinion, the, um, that wouldn't be like mad cow disease type of thing, would it? No, no. Is so, that stupid? Well, I actually don't know if mad cow disease is a bacteria or not. I know it's from them eating other animals' spine and like brain, and, like brain matter and shit. So I'd imagine it's not a bacteria. Man, but I don't know. Eating brain? I think right. Isn't that how mad cow disease is? They ground up the oh, other cows probably. and fed it to them, fed it to themselves, and when they ate, ate like some type of 
oh man the more honestly i know like a lot of people are when they think about veganism especially people that are more i guess conservative i love me are yeah are <laughs> They kind of think that a vegan is like a hippie, but the more that I think about it and the more that I actually see the reality of factory farming, mm -hmm. the more I'm like, this is disgusting. Well, there's a, there's a lot of meats that you don't have to use antibiotics, right? So like fish farms, they're not feeding the fish antibiotics to keep them fish, healthy. Fish, yeah, it'd be, um, I'd be more okay with eating fish. And like free range chicken and stuff. They don't give them, well, I guess I shouldn't say don't. I don't think they give them. I'm not as familiar with it. It's more the, it's more the, the stuff that you watch the horror videos on where the chickens are all cooped up in cages together because that's some more place for disease yeah. to be rampant so yeah. i think free-range cattle i don't think they'd give them antibiotics like we we're driving i was driving home from island park today saw plenty of cows out in the woods out there i can't imagine they're giving them antibiotics man i hate having cows in woods though <laughs> i one like last summer i was riding up my motorbike in the forest and uh, i got lost actually in the forest but nice i knew if i just kept going in one direction i'd find something and uh i had plenty of gasoline and i knew that i was around a certain area right so i found this trail it was a cattle trail and um you're complaining about cows on a cattle trail no 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 oh <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry 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 you're right you're right no the okay i ran into a bull on it was just like a motorcycle trail okay okay but um <laughs> yeah, because then that would have sounded like was, a bit they're, they're actually <laughs> helping me find a place out of my lost situation. Uh, no, so it was a it was a trail for motorbikes, right? Okay. So I knew if I would just follow this trail, I would find a way out some way. And uh, <laughs> across the ball. And and I I <laughs> I get to a part where there's this <laughs> massive bull with horns, dude, <laughs> just standing there, and I'm like. Mm -mm, mm -mm. This like, is what the fuck are you gonna do? Yeah, I was, I was like, this is this is really bad. I don't, Ugh. I do not like this, and so I just kind of like, <laughs> like a moron, like kind of talk to it, like tried to be like a bull whisperer. Uh, how are you doing, best? <laughs> I was just like, it's okay, it's all right. I have a friend that's a vegan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I pretend to be a vegetarian, but um, eventually he kind of just like shuffled away. And I went by, but like, I, it was terrifying, dude, <laughs> just having bulls. And so I also think that they're, um, they, uh, they scare me sometimes. Cause I think there's like a bear I'm running into like yeah, a black yeah. bear or something like that. When I saw one in the woods and thought it was a moose at first or an elk cause it was brown. And then I saw the other ones. I was like, oh, okay, never mind. That was a cow. Dude, there was a time where I was driving out in the farms, out, out like in the farms, past the farms, into the forest, mm -hmm. and um, I was driving, right, and I see this big black mass in the middle of the road, and I was like, what is that? <laughs> and then I see it separate into two, uh. and it was two cows, but as it was separating, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> like, what out? kind of sci-fi... Were you horror film in my <laughs> like, No, I, no. But <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> that would have been a nightmare. Yeah. But um, what were we talking about? Uh, Veganism and how antibiotics and, and how, uh, how antibiotic resistant strains come from. Right. That and that that was that was a good argument against why I was kind of upset that they hadn't have created penicillin and stuff earlier, but they still could have, I mean, <laughs> it still would have just been better for humanity to have that kind of stuff 
yeah, so, centuries I mean, ago. So it, that, that doesn't mean they didn't discover it centuries ago. It just might not have become commonplace. Like there was tons and tons so? of remedies and cures all over the place, dude. The probability that nobody ever discovered the way... So do you think somebody probably had... Like, probability. It's probable that some shaman or some witch doctor or, or just, someone... just a normal dude. Or a normal... <laughs> as if witch doctors aren't normal. And, uh, They're they, uncommon. <laughs> yeah, I don't we'll, think they made we'll up agree a high percentage that. of the populace. We'll agree. But you got like, your witch doctor degree too, motherfucker? Dude, witch doctors freak me out. Just thinking about some a witch doctor. What if, what are we thinking with witch doctor like New Orleans voodoo type thing or like Native American? Like what? what is I it? guess I'm thinking more Navajo, like a witch doctor okay. or some you know somebody's like coming up with spells and like transforming mm-hmm. people into like. Because yeah, I think shaman normally when I think like Native cultures. Yeah, I think Native people are awesome. I I would like to actually. I I watched this amazing interview of this Navajo man um, which I didn't know that Navajo they don't call themselves Navajo people that Navajo is what we call them is what yeah white people named them but they call themselves Diné and I guess Diné is a Navajo word for the people the people that's cool and uh, but it was this amazing interview of this Diné man who um, you know, alcoholism is quite a major problem mm-hmm. around the world, but particularly, he was saying, among Native people. And um, he said that you'll just see on the reservations just like uh, like hair, empty hairspray bottles and and uh, anything with alcohol in it. Does hairspray have alcohol in it? Yeah. Damn, I didn't know that. Some hairspray has New source. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you sorry, get that, sorry to that, make light no. of a serious no, situation. That's, that's really all I, that, I don't know where I was really go, kind of going with that. But um, it was just an interesting thing that I didn't know that Navajo was not. Um, it's Dene. It's Dene. Well, we do that with a lot of places, dude. Like, where yeah, we just we like, this is what you're called. In like, no, it's like Germany. I took German in high school. The name of the country is Deutschland. It means the fatherland. And we just call them Germany. <laughs> nah, you're Germany, bro. Nah, you're, Ger- you're Germans. <laughs> like, like, you're just, Germans. Like, that's not your name. Like, <laughs> and so we do that with tons of shit. Just like, nah, we're going to call you this. <laughs> yeah, Indians. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure Germany is uh, related to, like, Germanic tribes and stuff. And so we're like, oh, it's in the same area. I don't know the derivation, but that's not what they call themselves. <laughs> like, Did you enjoy taking German? Not many people take German. So, uh, my mom's dad was a German immigrant. Uh, his parents were uh, from Germany, and he spoke, uh, obviously spoke German, and so my mom knows quite a bit of German from him. He never never taught her to be fluent or anything, and so when we were little, my mom wanted me to speak German, so she bought, like, these little, like, German education videos I used to watch when I was a kid. Oh, cool. So your mom's full German? Uh, well, no, she's adopted, but her dad is German. Okay. Or was, he's dead. Um, and so she, she used to speak some German and can understand it pretty well. And so when I was little, she always wanted me to understand German. And so when I got to high school, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take four years of German and then I'm going to go to undergrad and I'm going to get a minor in it. And I'm going to, I'm going to be fluent German. Took Mrs. Geiger, the German teacher for ninth and 10th grade. She retired and Madison was like, 
Nobody else speaks German. No more German classes. Jeez. <laughs> and so I, did, I didn't never, I never became German, fluent. German is a very important language internationally, particularly in the sciences yeah, I mean, and mathematics. Look, looking back, I wish I would have taken Spanish or Mandarin, but yeah. way more useful. Yeah, I'm actually signed up for a Spanish course. Um, looking forward to it. Spanish is a beautiful, very useful language. The same with Mandarin. And your girlfriend is Chinese, right? Yeah, yeah, she, she and, speaks Chinese. Um, that's her mother tongue, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's Mandarin. Yes. Where in China is she from? So she's from just outside of Shanghai. Very cool. I wonder. So um, our friend Mason, mm-hmm. his wife is from China. And um, I didn't know how many that there were so many dialects of Mandarin. Where some are kind of, it would be very difficult for them to understand each other. And But I wonder if... I wonder what kind of accent um, your girlfriend has. So, Nicole, just curious she, she's been living in New Zealand since she was in high school. So, uh, she's a permanent resident there. So, she's, I, I don't know, her accent's probably pretty weird after the combination of the two. Hmm. Can you <coughs> can you detect uh, kind of like a Kiwi Yeah, yeah, accent? She's, she sounds yeah. like a fucking Kiwi. Does she? That's cool. <laughs> There's quite a large Asian population in New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're pretty close, right? Yeah. It's kind of like how we have a large Mexican population here. It's, it's not, but divided by a sea. Yeah, it's true. It's not, it's not exactly the same as Mexico. That's right. That's what I wanted to get at. But there's, a reason, not, there's, <laughs> there's a reason we have more Peruvians and Honduras right. here than we do Argentinians, because it's so far south in comparison. That's a good point. Dude, would you have would you have ever been interested in going into anything like law? That's actually what I wanted to be in high school. Because you're good at debate, and you were in debate, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. I was in debate, and I never applied myself ever enough to be good in it. I purposely picked the categories that required no preparation. <laughs> and so, yeah, every single debate that you had to like, you had to like form an argument before the debate. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And so. So you did just, <clears throat> like, free? So there's a congressional debate where you debate on other people's bills. It was a freestyle, and so you basically? Could, it was essentially U.S. Congress is what it was. And so you could show up and you could write your own bill if you wanted to in the debate it, but I always just debated everybody else's bills. And so I never wrote my own so bill. So before you wanted to go into engineering, you wanted to go into law? I, that was something like so you the problem thought is, about? I never really understood what a lawyer was, which is the reason I chose not to go into it. It's a lot more research in writing and building a case than it is arguing mm. and it is you know that a f- lot of lawyers are just kind of uh, glorified clerks in yeah, a yeah, way. yeah. The, the, the litigator is the one you see on television that's the cross exam and you know he gets a witness up there and he tears them apart right right but you're not seeing all the stuff that they do behind no, the scenes exactly and then also there's probably a whole team of attorneys for those big profile cases and only one person litigates it only one the most charismatic the most professional the guy who's been doing it the most mm-hmm. or woman uh that's been doing it the most that has the most experience they're going to be the one up front trying to tear apart and cross-examine that witness and that's definitely the the side of it i liked i liked the you know trying to figure something out trying to analyze a problem and solve it i didn't like the doing hundreds and hundreds of hours of casework and keeping meticulous notes that that was not something i wanted to do yeah no that's understandable um yeah once the reality of like what said, it means to be a lawyer hits i like the impromptu debate when i showed up and they said all right the two of you here's your topic debate it i like that i, I like you're just, natural with that and so that's that's what i wanted to do and that's not what an attorney does 
you know, I, I read an interesting article. It was written like nine years ago. I think it was 2011 that it came out. But um, it was a New York Times article that there are, as of 2011, I think, there are now more women who get their Juris Doctorate than men, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I um, wonder what it is. Doctorate, in, finally? Is this the, all doctorates? Um, in, in every, I think in every field, more women are men are out, women are out doing w- women women are out doing men except for um engineering i believe yeah so i mean and computer science they've been getting more de- college degrees for a while i didn't realize it was doctorates now too um yeah so women are definitely how many <clears throat> how many women did you have in your courses in your uh, engineering, engineering classes so in the engineering my sister-in-law courses, i just got her master's in engineering actually oh, cool. do you know what type um what is Rhodes? civil civil yep. civil engineering purdue oh that's cool that's a tough ass school to get into <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah civil engineering that's what my dad does oh cool yeah, yeah so he's a civil engineer and um, so did you have many women in your courses no no it was probably only 10 percent remembering back for my engineering courses uh the physics courses probably had 30 percent women uh and then you know the general courses obviously were just probably around half and half i think utah state at the time was probably 50 50. okay well that's promising then it's improving i guess (laughs) is that improving i mean i don't know (laughs) i don't know either go into whatever you want to go into you know what i mean like i i'm horrible in the stereotypical uh male disciplines Mm-hmm. The discipline I'm going into, actually, in speech therapy is, um, it's under 5% are men Damn. in speech therapy. It's crazy. Well chosen. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what have you been doing? So what have you been interested in lately that hasn't been... Um, so you, you got your MBA recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, not recently. A year now. A year. <laughs> so and... Uh, <laughs> Oh, actually, if I could ask you some stuff mm-hmm. about the MBA program. Yeah. What were some aspects of the MBA program that you enjoyed the most, like about business? Are there certain aspects of business that you like more than others? So, uh, I think it's the same with pretty much all schooling. By far, the thing that makes a course in a subject the most enjoyable is how the material is presented and the lecture on how they're, how they're doing it. So, by far, my best professor I had in my MBA program was my econ professor and so my favorite class was that economics class and i loved it uh i'm less inclined to the non hard sciences uh so like whenever it's whenever it's more opinion based if something's functioning or not and you can't really measure the data i'm less inclined towards that stuff and so in business that would be marketing um there was a really famous ceo i'm sure it was somebody like carnegie who said half of all marketing's garbage? The problem is, is we just don't know which half. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, there's, I don't know. I, 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 I don't, I don't lean gra- gravitate towards that stuff as much. Uh, where it's harder to be like, this is what we did, and these are the results we got because of this. Uh, I don't like that as much. And so, econ definitely has a lot of that too, like predicting how the market's going to react and what's happening and what caused these scenarios. Mm. But uh, my professor just made it very enjoyable and uh, broke everything down. It was the first time I ever heard an argument from a business standpoint for more government intervention than less. 
uh, which is crazy for an econ class. Normally supply and demand, price caps, all that stuff. It'll be full government stay the fuck out. Um, private industry, you know, let the market regulate itself, right? Yeah, all the economists that I know or have know about mm -hmm. are more libertarian. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is if you ask them about um, stock, uh, when a when a company goes uh, public and uh, does their initial IPO, they're selling their stocks, right? If you ask them about that scenario and ask them like this company's selling their stuff. How do you know whether or not you should buy this company's stock? The way you know how you should buy this company's stock is all based on government regulation. So um, they have to do these general accounting principles called GAAP. Uh, they have to file these forms. They have to show you their income. They have to show you all this stuff. But they show you this stuff based on what the U.S. government demands that they show you. And so if they don't provide this information, there is a Nobel Prize winning uh, econ, uh, econ paper called The Market for Lemons that proves how bad scenarios are. But the thing is, is these companies aren't gonna provide this information just by themselves. They're not just gonna offer up this information. Well, they're gonna try to. You're not gonna trust them is the problem. When they say, oh, you know, I'm selling my stock from this new company, I got this, my IPO's coming up, you should buy it, I have this drug company, we're doing this, we're making so much money this way, we have all these best ideas, you're gonna sell it as an amazing company, no matter if it's shit or not, right? And so the investors, people planning on buying your stock just have no idea. And so government regulation is necessary in order for everybody to get the benefit out of this. People starting good new companies, they want to do these IPOs, these stock offerings, and they want to make money. And investors that want to invest in these companies, you need a third party to come in and regulate information so that the investors know about this company and the investors trust the information they're getting. That's necessary. You can't, you can't have these IPOs, you can't have this selling of stock without the third party there. Well, dude, it's, it seems like business would be a great fit for you because you can argue, because you can debate. <laughs> just make shit up. Because, <laughs> no, because it, even though maybe not in marketing, for mm -hmm. example, but in a lot of business, it comes down to facts and figures. Yeah. And how you can formulate those and how you can just bring those to your defense for a position or to attack a, pos a position. Mm-hmm. And um, are there certain areas that you found in your MBA program because your undergrad was in engineering? And so then you get into this MBA program. Did it kind of change your perspective or like kind of, you know, it's like when somebody goes into medicine and then they start doing what are the rounds called? Like you start kind of testing different areas. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And um, for it. so like in the MB in an MBA program, do you get a taste of all these different kind of subjects and genres? Yeah, definitely. And then uh, you figure out what you like most. So by far the thing I liked the most was strategy. So I just that I would I would love to work for a company and just determine how they're going to basically do their business. <laughs> you know, just no, like, <laughs> I, I don't know much about that, but it sounds like you would be excellent at that. But, like rather than um, doing something that's more like, would you want to, like, for example, own a business or would you rather go in and see, use that strategy for other businesses? Man, I'm so lazy. <laughs> and owning a business is like <laughs> is so insanely hard. Oh, I mean, I guess it depends what business you own, right? If you have a lawn mowing business and you can decide to mow lawns 10 hours a week is all, you know, so it, it depends on the business and what you're doing. Uh, I like the idea of starting a business, but uh, I probably won't anytime soon just because of the time investment and I like I like not working 
Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> it's it's really nice. Yeah, me too. Is it, so what will come around if something comes around? What will grab you and bring you? I mean, I I gotta find a job so that I can continue to live the lifestyle I want and not just turn into a bum eight years from now. Well, so. and you explained that to me, which I thought was. I thought was really enlightening. Actually, was that lifestyle is more important to you than um, just acquiring money. Yeah. So a lot of people who go into business um, and they become the top businessman or the top lawyer or the top whatever. There's it's, it's ego. There it's ego, and they're doing everything to be at the top, right? Yeah. And they're spending all of their time, free time, finding more ways to get more money and to get higher up. In the hierarchy you want to and what i want to do as well is position myself so that i can have more more time to do what i want just yes. hang out with friends hang out with people i love and care about exactly dude. um go on hikes or do stuff like that dude that's my favorite thing to do just interact with other human beings and do it in cool places yeah, yeah me too and so you it, it's when you find that job that will provide enough time to do that and also the monetary um and the money yeah, yeah in order to do that so something in strategy so i mean that's that's what i would love i would love to be a company's chief strategy officer and just determine the strategic direction of the firm uh nobody's gonna offer me that position right now so uh gotta keep just looking for positions related to it and climb my way up but did your study of physics and engineering help you when you got into business uh i think the main way it helps me is probably relating to the technical side uh so if i'm working for a tech company and i have to deal with programmers or people on that side of things i could probably speak their language better and understand what they're saying and relate it to the business mind inside of the house better that's probably the main way but... and the math you encountered was probably nothing compared to the math that you encountered in engineering oh right? yeah no, my, my business classes were so easy uh i was the valedictorian in my mba class and i thought it was extremely easy i thought it was easier than my undergrad <laughs> that's awesome dude i love hearing stuff like that valedictorian of your class how many people were in your class 63 64 i think from, we had... they're from all over the world uh yeah i mean Probably 40% of them were from Utah, Idaho, surrounding area. Probably the other 40% were from around the U.S. And then 20% international. Okay. With the majority of that 20% being from India. Really? Probably half the international students were from India. That's what my brother said um, in his engineering program as well. Mm -hmm. In his engineering program, I think it was... I think there were actually more Indian and Chinese together than there were just... Um, I might like Caucasian American. In you said which program? Uh, in Purdue. In Purdue. Yeah. I might have overestimated that. It might have only been like ten percent. Now that I'm thinking about the people I can think of from my class. It's a very competitive school, though University of Utah. That's a good school. Yeah, it was a it was a good it was a good degree. That's right in Salt Lake, right? Yeah, I mean the main reason I went there was my family was close and I wanted to go skiing, so that did the job. I I had. I've had three years of amazing, amazing skiing. Dude, that's another thing I forgot about you is that you love skiing. Oh, it's so much fun. And you, have you been doing that since you were a kid? Uh, when we were younger, we just did the ski school. Did you ever do ski school here? Yeah, dude, I have good memories of oh, ski school. Oh, it was amazing. Going to Kelly Canyon? Yep, Kelly Canyon. Dude, every time I have a an airhead, 
<laughs> I think of Kelly Canyon because they had them there, you know, in like the commissary area or whatever you call mm-hmm. it. And isn't the commissary what you call it in the military? Commissary is where you, it's like they're equivalent to a grocery store. Um, in the Navy, the galley is where you eat. Oh, okay. Because that's what it's called on the ship, a galley. Oh, okay. So it's equivalent of a galley, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yep. On, and, uh, or I guess, you know, you know where I'm getting commissary from? That's where they also call it in prison. I watch a lot of prison shows <laughs> on YouTube about life in prison. Dude, I don't you've know. You've been to prison, don't lie. <laughs> All yeah, right. Here, where everybody's like, where the fuck's Kevin at? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little, like... little stint in county. <laughs> I watch YouTube videos. I watch all these videos about prison. <laughs> Bringing in all this knowledge of prison life. And like, I don't know from firsthand, but I'm told in prison if you do this. In prison, they really don't like the pedophiles. Uh, but, uh, I've just heard. I've just heard that. YouTube, nope. YouTube videos, dude. <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, anyways. Um, yeah, I, I have really good memories of going out there in ski school. I think it's oh, unfortunate yeah, that, you know, everyone doesn't get to have that opportunity. Dude, just... it was cheap as shit, dude. That's yeah. Like... Seriously, now looking at the prices as an adult? I can't even remember what the number was, but I remember comparing it to a day pass, and I think the four days we got... Oh, it's something like $40. I, I thought 40 the... or $50, isn't it? I thought the four days we got were cheaper than a one-day pass at Kelly. I think it's so. It's not like Kelly prices are high. Mm-mm. Like... And so it was. So you started at the same time as third grade was when I moved here to Rexburg, and so that was my. Oh, they started uh, doing it in third grade. Oh, that's the first Ski year school? I went. Yeah. Oh wow, my first year that I went was. Shit, maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Maybe it was Almost middle school. Fifth. Yeah, so it might have been mi- fifth. middle school. You're right. I remember the buses coming back to middle school. And so, but yeah, and so so middle school you started and you just you yeah. stuck with skiing and fell in love with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I in all honesty, uh, I went away from it for like eight years or so uh during my undergrad i only went a few times and then the whole five and a half years i was in the navy well five and a half years i was working in the navy uh in charleston i didn't go skiing once but uh do they have any snow it snowed twice when i was there uh it was gone by the middle of the day okay so no ski resorts no no ski resorts down there there might be some in north carolina i don't i don't know for certain uh, I, I doubt it. Nothing like the Rockies. Nope, no Rockies out there. And so once you got over here, you just started to pick that up and get serious about it. Yeah, yeah. When I when I decided to move back to Salt Lake because James lives there, I was like, I'm gonna fucking start skiing all the time. So I bought a pass. Any skis? Bought a pair of U skis. Yeah, yeah. We went up a lot last year. I think we went up like six or seven times. Me, him, and his wife. What's the ski resort there? Uh, in Salt Lake. Yeah. So you got Snowbird and Alta together up one canyon. You got. Um, Brighton and Solitude up another canyon, and then if you go around to the other side of the mountain, uh, you get Park City and Deer Valley. Oh, and wow. so there's six there. And then um, Beavers Logan, isn't it? Yes, Beavers at Logan. Okay, so I I like that. I went to that. I've never been to. I've heard Park City is amazing. Obviously, I've actually haven't done Park City. You should do it then. And so this this winter you should. The problem is, is I'm told it's really crowded, and my pass isn't to there, and so I just go where my pass is because I get in for free. Oh, yeah, yeah. never yeah, mind. So, so my first two years, I did Snowbird. Uh, is that um, the one that you have your pass at now? The, um, so this last year, I got the Icon Pass, and then this year, I'm gonna, I got the Icon Pass again. The Icon Pass gives you seven days at Snowbird and Alta, because um, they're right next to each other. So it's one resort or the other, seven days. It gives you seven days at Brighton. It gives you seven days at Deer Valley, and it gives you unlimited days at Solitude. And so that's an amazing pass. It's, yeah, it's it's really nice. Uh, and then it gives you resorts around the country, but I haven't used any of those. But you can go up to Jackson Hole for an entire week, 
uh, seven days up there. So I've been planning on going there. How do you compare the ski resorts in Utah to like Targhee? Dude, the only two places I've ever skied other than those resorts in Salt, around Salt Lake is Kelly Canyon, and I've gone to Targhee once. But I went to Targhee once when I was 20, and it's been a decade, so I don't remember it very well. So Kelly's is better than all of them? Yeah, Kelly's obviously the best. <laughs> and yeah, That's yeah, right. When I, when I went to Targhee, the only place I had ever skied it's at like was Kelly's. It's like sheets of ice <laughs> Dude, everywhere. Dude, I liked Kelly's. I, I loved Kelly's, man. <laughs> the small, small mountain, but man, it's it was fun. Yeah. Ernie, Ernie's was my favorite trail. And they have night night skiing they do stuff, have night skiing. which is cool that you can just go out there um brighton up in in salt lake i believe has night skiing uh i don't know about deer valley or park city but on the salt lake side of the mountains brighton has night skiing man that makes me want to get back into dude come down and do a day of skiing with me i think we can get a uh ha- the either half day pass at alta or a half day pass at brighton for like 40 bucks and i can i can use my pass obviously is james pretty good yeah he's real good Obviously not as good as me, but right, obviously, <laughs> obviously. Well, dude, sweet man. Well, thanks for doing this uh, yeah, this man. podcast with me, man. We'll do it again. You're easy to talk to. Thanks for having me on again. I love talking to you as well.